This is Exponent Philanthropy's catalytic podcast, Conversations with Leaders at Small Foundations. Meet some of the most creative, resourceful, and risk-taking foundation people in the country. This is a story about how a leanly staffed, place-based foundation provided the vision and the organizing to create something very big and very powerful. That very big thing is what Henry Rael, Director of Strategy and Initiatives at the McCune Foundation, calls a platform, a structure where foundations in and outside New Mexico can invest money to build capacity of smaller community-based Native American-led groups. The journey to this work began when the McCune Foundation catalyzed a funder collaborative composed of mostly New Mexico foundations to engage nonprofits and learn how to best meet their needs. Henry helped design a platform the foundations could use to make it easy for nonprofits to apply for joint funding. During the pandemic, as the needs of tribal communities were accentuated, the collaborative decided to target support to Native American-led groups and invest that money in ways directed and informed by members of the communities. To complement the program and general support, the collaborative is also creating a capacity-building and leadership development program for leaders nominated by Native American-led grantee partners. Over time, the platform has enabled a wide variety of private and public funders to invest resources in Native American communities in New Mexico in ways that center the voice of tribal leaders and community members. This two-part catalytic podcast highlights the ingenious structure and platform designed by the McCune Foundation and its foundation partners. The vision for a platform was influenced by Henry Rael's extensive experience working with small community groups and his career in the technology industry. The, the platform brings together complex processes into a single, simple interface so that the end user benefits from an integrated system without having to understand all the complexity. In this case, the end users are smaller Native American-led nonprofits and community groups that are able to access and apply for flexible, multi-year support in ways that are not burdensome. The other end users are foundations outside New Mexico who do not have the benefit of deep local knowledge and relationships. The platform gives these national and regional funders the opportunity to invest in tribal communities in culturally appropriate ways and to meet needs prioritized by community members. The collaborative catalyzed by the McCune Foundation 
also has dedicated itself to build the capacity of Native American-led groups to apply for millions of federal dollars available for work in health, education, economic development, water, and other areas, and to direct these funds in ways determined by the communities themselves. This is groundbreaking work that will build long-term capacity among Native American organizations. Henry begins the story by reflecting on the power of funders learning together from nonprofits. You know, I think a lot of times funders are frustrated by the siloing that happens in terms of the way that nonprofits don't work together. But I think our sort of insight was the realization that funders really behave the same way. Um, and that if the folks who are making the funding decisions are operating in that way, it shouldn't really be too much of a surprise that nonprofits operate the same way. So in our strategic plan, we, we really drilled in on that and we decided that we wanted to see what role we could play as a relatively small local foundation um, in terms of changing that. So a lot, and a lot of this came out of the conversations with our grantees. We got so many insights and ideas. So we started to talk to other funders locally and came up with uh, an idea for a pooled fund that we called the Zone Grant. And the idea was really um, about, you know, and I, I think part of it is that, you know, funders do collaborate. I don't mean to say that funders don't collaborate, but I think funders have a lot of barriers in terms of how deeply they can collaborate. Um, that's because they have their own boards, they have their own timeframes, they have their own reporting requirements. Each foundation has all of that sort of complexity within its own grant making um, process and cycles. So as much as we want to collaborate, there's always these just sort of natural structural barriers. So what we started brainstorming with other local funders was how do we create structures that can sort of abstract that complexity, that can sort of flow across all of the partner foundations in ways that would allow us to align um, our, our dollars, our when money flows, how it flows, and then um, agreements around how the money would work. So uh, in order to participate, we basically said, okay, we all have to agree that the funds that ultimately get to nonprofits have to be unrestricted. Um, we have to be really, uh, you know, much easier on them in terms of the reporting requirements. Um, we'll have a single report that can then be accepted by all of the participating funders, things like that. So we, we devised a, a structure and the structure really at the end of the day is a series of agreements among the funders in terms of how we're going to behave and work with each other. And um, the idea was essentially, let's create a structure where we can give out multi-year grants, unrestricted, that would uh, support collaboration among groups across the state. Um, so when we first did that experiment, you know, it started um, about four years ago, and the idea was these three-year grants, uh, you know, $25,000 planning grant up front, followed by a couple of years of implementation dollars. Um, at around $100,000 per year. Um, and we, so we put that together and, you know, all of our fun, all of our partners were local. It was uh, a number of community foundations, other um, family foundations here in New Mexico. We had one um, national funder that learned about the work and, and participated, a uh, Solid Doggo Foundation, but it was really 
all local funders in this in the first go around. And so, you know, we we tested it. We we made grants together. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes. Um, we scheduled the opening convening for the grantees on the same day that was the opening day of the state legislature. So, yeah, how does that happen? You know, uh, putting grantees in a position to choose between <laughs> coming to our grant convening or going to the state legislature on the opening day. So, yeah, we made a lot of those kinds of mistakes. Um, but uh, we we learned and we spent a lot of time talking to the grantees again, you know, what worked with this, what didn't work. And we started to ramp up for our second version uh, of the zone grant. And of course, you know, COVID happened. And as we were, you know, all sort of like changing our practices to respond to the pandemic, um, a lot of us participated in, in uh, a fund called the Native American uh, Relief Fund that the New Mexico Foundation um, had put together. And, you know, we were all sort of focused on that. Tribes in New Mexico at that time were actually experiencing some of the highest infection and hospitalization rates in the world. Um, and it was really sobering. And this is also, you know, incidentally, right when the um, basically racial uprisings were happening. Um, so it was really a time of deep reflection, I think, for all of us um, funders who had been working together, right, for a period of years now. And so what we decided as we were thinking, you know, the first zone grant was focused on collaboration. Why don't we focus this one on recovery in Native American communities? And so that was sort of the genesis of the Native American Recovery Fund zone grant. Um, and so we essentially architected it um, in, in, you know, based on the principles of the original zone grant, but definitely responding to the lessons learned. And the key point for all of us in this was really about how do we really center community voice in this process on a deeper level than what we had done before. So, um, and what did that mean? You know, so part of that meant that when we do an RFP, you know, the RFP questions shouldn't be drafted by a bunch of funders sitting in their offices. Um, and so we were super intentional about going out and building um, relationships with Native American leaders in the state. Um, we had a number of partners um, who um, participated. We had the Native American Relief Fund, which was really focused on providing, you know, emergency relief, you know, for water, for food, for PPE. But that fund, which the New Mexico Foundation had set up, had an advisory committee um, of Native American leaders who were making decisions. So we recruited that team to come and help um, in drafting RFP questions. So the structure was, you know, the the, I, the understanding is that we we started to say we have all this complexity within our foundations, but the basic alignment is around our priority areas. So we identified common priority areas um, among the foundations. And the ones that we settled on were um, family economic security, opportunity youth, health systems, local food systems, and water resilience. So those were the five areas where we knew we had funders who were interested in, in participating. And so we created what we called strategy tables. So each one of those areas had a strategy table. And so the strategy table consisted of um, funders who were interested in that area, plus Native American leaders who were experts or interested in that area. So you had 
So what you had was these were these tables um, that included funders and community voice in each one of these areas. So we said, okay, well now let's write an RFP. And so we went through a process um, where we wrote a single RFP, you know, to solicit proposals for the fund. But um, we had a specific question targeting each one of those areas. And the questions were written by the strategy tables. That was the first kind of uh, inkling that we started to get that this was going to be a really sort of unique process because what we saw, um, and I facilitated a lot of those conversations, was um, funders sort of putting forward their sort of ideas and some language, but then the Native American leaders um, coming in and basically saying, well, you know, you're not really thinking about this or you're not really thinking about that. Let's rewrite it. Let's change it. Let's do it this way. Um, part of the the challenge was our Native American partners were saying, you know, we understand that foundations have to put these things into different buckets. But at the end of the day, in our communities, we don't really differentiate between water resilience and food systems. And we don't really think of the difference between food systems and health. And we don't think about the difference between health and family economic security. So, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that was our first our first opportunity to say, well, let's make sure that as we're drafting these questions, they're being drafted in ways that are, is not putting them so much into a bucket, you know, and, and really create opportunities for for emergence and, and what connects. So that was our, our first step was making sure that the language of the questions was was going to actually um, be culturally aligned with the native-led organizations that were going to be applying for for these funds. So we did that. Um, we issued an RFP collectively. And by the way, as we were doing this, um, and I don't know why exactly. I think part of it was because of the um, work of the Native American Relief Fund, because we were able to sort of connect with those funders who had participated in that. Um, we also were fortunate that certain local funders connected with regional and national funders who they knew were interested. So um, a local um, funder here from the Thornburg Foundation who is very interested in water um, connected us with the Colorado um, River Sustainability Initiative and Sam Tucker, um, who then connected us with other national funders who were like the Walton Family Foundation who were interested in the topic. So I think a, a big difference from this zone grant and the, and the other was the first zone grant built deeper level of trust among the local funders so that when we moved into the second iteration those funders were willing and enthusiastic about looking at other funders regional and national funders who they could then bring in so the next phase was decision making you know so so we um issued the rfp statewide um, again looking for native-led organizations and we received, you know, somewhere close to 45 proposals that came in through the process. And where, where the first version of the zone grant was um, hosted by the Santa Fe Community Foundation, the New Mexico Foundation, uh, formerly the New Mexico Community Foundation, was is played the fiscal role for this um, second zone grant, the Native American Recovery Fund. So they um, have basically issued the RFP, received the proposals, as they received the proposals, what they did was they then distributed them to the strategy tables. So the local food system strategy table 
was able to look at the 12 proposals that came in around local food systems. And in the same kind of process, which was facilitated and was really driven by consensus decision as opposed to, you know, hey, let's take a vote to see who we should fund. Um, we arrived at um, the grantees that way. And again, um, without exception, the funders deferred to the judgment and the decision making by the indigenous leaders that were participating on the strategy tables. So that yielded a total of 12 grantees. And, and it was it was driven by, again, the, the first of all, the decision that we were not going to fund somebody with a $25,000 grant unless we could also fund the follow on implementation dollars. So we from through our fundraising efforts, we were able to um, fund 12 grants. And so these are essentially three year, $225,000 grants, unrestricted funds. Um, and there was basically two in each of the strategy tables, um, except for water and opportunity youth. And in those areas, we did three. So there was three in each of those two, and then two in the other three. So for a total of 12 grantees. Part of our learning also from the first go around was that, okay, that's really great if you can give $225,000 unrestricted money to a group to do work. Um, but the other piece that really was clear um, was that a lot of these native-led groups just, you know, again, like when we sort of looked at the at what was happening in tribes during the pandemic and the levels of infection and um, that we were seeing there, that was a, just a super clear reflection and manifestation of the underinvestment that those communities have received for decades, for generations. So we really were committed to acting on that. And so realizing that it wasn't enough just to give programmatic dollars, even if it's unrestricted um, to these groups in the recovery efforts. So what we decided to do was actually to also create a leadership support and capacity building network that would run concurrent with the grant term. And the way we thought about this was of basically giving each of the grantee organizations the opportunity to nominate two people from their organization. And these could be any role. It could be the executive director of the organization. It could be a youth leader who participates, whoever they want, two people from each organization to participate in this leadership development network. And key to that was that we would provide them, each participant, with a stipend um, and a meaningful stipend. We're still figuring out the mechanism, but we were thinking about $12,000 a year for two years for each of the participants so that it would be a meaningful uh, contribution to them personally and professionally in terms of their ability to participate in a network outside of the work that they're already doing. podcast with Henry Rael continues in part two. Please join us. Look for new catalytic podcasts each month. Meet more creative funders. Benji Rue does the audio engineering and mixing. Our website is by Kwok Lee. Our music is by O Future. The catalytic podcast is made possible by grants from two exponent members, the 1772 Foundation and the Blackstone Ranch Institute. 
I'm your producer and host, Andy Carroll. Thanks for listening. Join us next time.